Well, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer right now, just uh, on behalf of the opportunities that were presented to us this morning, and on behalf of Chris. Father God, we exalt you this morning. We seek to uh, know you more. And so it is with uh, deep gladness that we thank you that you brought back our, our dear men, that you've allowed them to be encouraged and blessed by their scouting trip. Lord, you've opened up doors, and now, Lord, you are just... Uh, really asking us to pray and asking us to uh, just give up our lives and to consider how we may serve you best uh, in that part of the world. We do pray and ask continually for true wisdom, true biblical discernment, Lord, and passionate hearts, willing and yearning to spread the gospel wherever you desire us to go. And we do thank you that that same gospel uh, was used so mightily by you, O Lord, through our servants at the CCF in Long Beach to reach our dear brother Chris. And Lord, we thank you for his testimony of faith that you have turned him around, Lord, from idols to serve the living God and to await Jesus Christ, his son. Lord, we thank you that uh, you caused him to recognize his own depravity, his sinfulness, and to see in the cross, Lord, uh, just um, how you deal with sin, uh, your holiness and your wrath. And to see in the cross his deliverance, to see in the cross the way out, the way out of his burdens, the way out of the penalty, and uh, to, be re- uh, to be united with you and to be reconciled with you as a true child of God. We thank you for the faith that you've granted to him. We pray that you would continue to use Joshua, you would continue to use the other believers around him to build up his faith, uh, that he would in, in, in turn go forth and uh, share the gospel as well and be a light in this world. We thank you so much for what you have for this morning as we turn our attention to your word. We give you all praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. If you all rise with me for the reading of God's word, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. So when it was evening on... That day, the first of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, 
Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You may be seated. Well, thank you so much for a wonderful uh, musical presentation, Mike, Jeremy, and Jonathan. Uh, just such an appropriate song for our time and the word today. Thank you, Elder Bob, for your sharing. I know we're going to hear some more um, during second hour. And just what a wonderful opportunity. Thank you, Chris, uh, again, for your testimony. And uh, just wonderful to see how God providentially orchestrates, you know, even your sins <laughs> to draw him closer to you. Well, we are in John 20, and as I was thinking about how I was going to kind of sum all this up, package all of this up, you know, kind of ran into a problem. And the problem was that really, like, if you want to really study this text and really explain it carefully, it require, I think it would require three sermons, to be honest with you. It would require three um, sermons altogether to uh, fully examine and dissect this um, dissect this thing and as I was going over this and going over this I I just wanted to kind of get to the point I just kind of wanted to uh, find what everything meant find one sentence and for the life of me I could not do that well this is really just an illustration you know as I was going through this going through this as talking about it with my wife maybe getting some feedback from her and and she said this is an illustration of this ongoing debate that we have in our house and I said, really, what is this debate that we have in our house? Well, the debate in our house between her and me is that we are fighting over who is the better storyteller. Who is the better storyteller? You know, we have different views on what makes a good storyteller. Uh, I think in reality, uh, neither of us would win an award for being the best storyteller. Uh, but really, my wife, what she does is that she builds up the story really well. I think... Ladies, sisters are more into the, all the details. She's very precise. You know, she tells me, oh, last night I had this dream, and then she goes through the whole dream, step by step, every um, agonizing <laughs> but wonderful inch. And often this leaves me wondering, what was the point? What are you trying to say? And when I ask that, she accuses me of not listening. Right, so what can I do, right? My problem tends to be, my problem tends to be, and especially, I guess, you know, just with people that I know really well, is that I like to jump to the point of the story. So I go to the end of the story before I build up anything. You know, I don't talk about the details, I don't talk about characters. I just say, hey, this happened, and then that's it. And I get to the point. It's like the punchline first before the joke. And I leave people kind of hanging, and I know this frustrates her because she just wants more. She just told me the point. You didn't... To tell me anything and I said oh man that point was everything that was a great story wasn't it <laughs> and in reality right a good storyteller should have both should know the point should have a punchline should have a climax and should build up the details right and so I believe as we get to here in verse uh, chapter 20 in John we have a divine example of that because at the end of this passage that we're studying this morning we're going to have right, the climax of the story Really, all the build-up for the past five years, for the past uh, 20 and a half chapters of John, boils down to verses 30 and 31. That's where John actually began. 
in chapter 1. And that's where he will finish the formal conclusion of the book. There is another chapter, more like an epilogue, right? But chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 or the conclusion. And John has been building up all the details of Christ's life, all his teachings so carefully and really in thorough detail unpackaged, right? All the discourses that come on the heels of all the miracles, the signs, descriptions of these events, and now the climax of the story. And so we have John wrapping it up and presenting to us the main point of it all, the one real sentence that sums up the gospel, sums up pretty much everything in his ministry. And he doesn't want to leave us, he doesn't want to leave us hanging. He doesn't want us, you know, looking for more, looking around going, you know, where did he get this point? What is he talking about? He wants to tell us one thing and one thing only, and that is true faith takes the word about Jesus at face value. True faith takes the word about Jesus in the Bible at face value. I mean, that's belief. No questions asked. No arguments, no debates, but just complete and utter, total submission to the Jesus of the Scriptures. Well, because this is kind of a, a large text and, you know, there may be multiple points, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to compress this a little bit and really, I'm going to just look at 19 to 23 as context. As context, because really, I believe the main point of this is Thomas, his confession and then uh, Jesus' words about his confession, and John's conclusion. So we're going to look at verses 19 to 23 just as a background, a backdrop of Thomas and his uh, uh, conviction. It is, as verse 19 tells us, the evening of the very day of the resurrection. Last week we saw Mary, John, and Peter both approach the empty tomb, and Mary actually gets to see Christ. Christ has already made on top of that several other appearances to the other women who are at the tomb, to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And here he will make uh, more appearances. And after that, of course, during his 40 days on the earth before the ascension, he appears to more than 500 of his followers. Verse 19 immediately tells us that the disciples were afraid of the Jews and that's why the doors had been shut. The doors had been locked. Fear of the Jews is repeated three times, including this verse in the Gospel of John, as a reason for why people... Do or do not do something. You remember in a previous sermon, uh, maybe about a month ago or less, Nicodemus, Joseph, these two uh, kind of secret disciples because of the fear of the Jews, they kept that hidden. Well, here it is as well. You know, followers of Jesus would be threatened. They were still, in a sense, being hunted. And because of that, they took this uh, necessary precaution. And right, at the, right in the midst of that fear, the shut doors... Who comes? Verse 19, uh, the rest of verse 19 tells us that Jesus suddenly appeared in their midst, miraculously. And that's why twice in this chapter it says the doors had been shut. Right? Not just because they want to say that they were afraid, but to show the miraculous nature of Jesus' appearance. Luke 24:37 actually says the disciples were literally scared to death by his sudden appearance. They thought they were seeing a ghost. Luke records that for us. And so, to allay any fears, our Lord immediately says, Peace be with you. I mean, they were startled out of their minds. Like, who is this person suddenly appearing in the room? And so Jesus, to impart peace, says, Peace to you. And really, you know, you think about that one, 
cannot help but think about verses like John 14:7, you know, peace I live, leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives I give to you. He says, don't let your heart be troubled, right? Don't be fearful. Here kind of that being played out. John 16:33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace, in the world you'll have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. We get a small slice of that. Obviously, the peace that Jesus is talking about is much more comprehensive in those verses, but here at least you, they, they're given inner peace, saying calm, right? Be still, it's okay, it's me. And our Lord then immediately goes to identify Himself. He shows them exactly why they can have peace. The wounds on my hands, here's my pierced side. I'm the crucified Lord, I'm your Jesus, I'm your Rabbi, your Master. And He just, you know, humbly condescends to their level. And he calms their fears and he gently guides them to this level of understanding. It's amazing that Jesus would still have the scars. Is it now? We think about resurrection bodies, think about glorified bodies in heaven. We'll be perfect, you know. We won't have any blemishes or scars, any, you know, any pain, any malformities, anything. Everything will be perfect and complete. And yet Jesus here still retains the scars. And I think that's wonderful. And that just shows how important, how massively significant the cross is, that he would still bear the wounds. Revelation 5, 6, when John sees the vision of Christ before the tribulation, before the seals are opened and all these plagues and judgments are thrown on the earth at the end times, John sees a lamb. And he just doesn't call it a lamb. He says, I see a lamb standing as if slain. And it seems like even in heaven, our Lord is marked out by the physical features of His sacrifice. Even in heaven, the wounds will stay with Him and He will forever be the Lamb that was slain. Yes, the Lamb that is now risen, but He will bear the marks of His awesome sacrifice. And upon seeing that, the disciples are just bowled over with joy. No questions, no debates. No, let me test the reality of these scars. This is prosthetics. This is special effects. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They recognized Him. And John 16.22 comes right to mind. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Man, can you imagine the moment of recognition? Like the moment when Mary recognized that Jesus was calling her Mary. They thought their world had collapsed. Their world had caved in. They didn't know what, they, what to do. They were threatened. They were scattered, confused. Peter had just denied his beloved master three times. You know, Peter, their leader. They're getting these reports of all these appearances. They don't know what to do. They don't know where they're going. They don't have an aim. They don't have a purpose. Confusion and heart. A confusion and doubt fill their heart. And suddenly the Lord appears and shows himself to be who He truly is, and they are in just real inexpressible joy. And with that, with that joy, with that peace of heart, at the end of uh, this passage, 22 and 23, this portion of this passage, Christ then takes His disciples, and like a good shepherd, like a good teacher, releases His disciples. He releases the hounds upon the earth. He sends His disciples and He says, I send you like My Father sent Me. The same mission God had for Me, God the Father to bring me to earth, to call sinners to repentance, that is the same mission I send you, John 17:18. As you have sent me into the world, that's Christ talking to the Father, I also have sent them 
the disciples into the world. His mission is their mission, is our mission. And Christ, interestingly enough, by saying, has sent me, is implying basically that I am continuing to be sent through you being sent. And even to this day we can say we partake in that. That Christ participates in us being sent. He is the living Lord that is present in us. As we go forth, Christ in us goes forth as well. And not only that, He empowers them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, for sake of time, there's a lot of debate about this because He breathes on them and He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And people say, what about Acts 2? Wasn't that the reception of the Holy Spirit? What's really going on here? Well, really, I'll just boil it down to this. This is more of a symbolic action. I would say here that Christ is not actually imparting the Holy Spirit yet. He has to go to the Father first to impart the Spirit. That's what He said over and over again. So what He's doing here is, if I may just use a simple word, is a preview of what's going to happen. A preview of the empowering that will take place in Acts 2, right? They'll receive power then, but here, as He commissions them, before He goes away, He gives them a little foretaste. And actually, the text doesn't say He breathed on them. It just says He breathed, and then He said... And it makes sense, because he's, he wants to give a visible demonstration of what's going to happen. And he does this because the word for breath and the word for spirit come from the same word. And so he's kind of acting out for them, for their sakes, right? For their weak faiths. This is what's going to happen. Be assured, be comforted. The spirit will come like this. And that's what he's doing. Otherwise, we'd have to think, that by Christ breathing, the Spirit actually comes out of His mouth. And that seems a little bit far-fetched for me. And also, what happened to the disciples? After He breathed on them, they were supposed to have all this power. But in the next chapter, you see them not going out and being this evangelizing force, you know, going out and just like, storming the world for the Gospel. They're going back to their old trade of fishing. Peter's going back to his old self, worrying about how John's going to die and how he's going to die and how come John gets this and I don't get... Yeah, they don't... They're not like changed and charged and like radically uh, set on fire. No, that doesn't happen. And on top of that, what about Thomas? He doesn't get breathed on, right? So he's left out of, you know, he's left out of the loop. He doesn't get the two breathings, he only gets one. Later on in Acts 2, no, no, no. Because of that, we have to say it's a symbolic action. And Christ, as he sends them, he says, I will empower you, this is what it's going to look like. And on top of that, verse 23, he authorizes them. He authorizes them, right? Matthew 9, 6 says this, The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And it is that authority that is being conferred here. It is that authority. But not like the Roman Catholic Church would say. You know, you go into the confessional booth in a Roman Catholic Church and they can actually absolve your sins. They can actually take your sins away. They have the power to do that. That's not the power that's being spoken of here. Obviously, the rest of the New Testament would clearly explain that and that would go against all teachings of Jesus and the whole church. Of course, absolutely speaking, God alone can forgive sins. We know that Mark 2, 5-7 is one example. But really, an explanation of this is very simple. And one verse that comes to mind is Acts 10.43. Acts 10.43. So they're sent, they're empowered, they're authorized to forgive or not forgive. What does that mean actually? This is what Peter says. Of him, of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness 
that through His name, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins. Very simple. The prophets testified about Jesus, and if you believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. How do the the disciples have the authority to forgive or not forgive? Not in and of themselves, but no, in the Word. In the preaching of the Word, that is what happens. We are an aroma of life to life for some, but for others who don't believe, we are an aroma of death. And our words only bring further condemnation, right? We hold out to people heaven and hell. We hold out to people light and darkness. We hold out to people blindness and sight. You can stay in one or you can come over here and be in the other if you repent and if you believe that Jesus Christ is God and He died on the cross for sins and He rose again. One writer said this, There is no doubt from the context that the reference is to forgiving sins or withholding forgiveness. And that is just simply the result of preaching the gospel which either brings men to repent as they hear of the ready and costly forgiveness of God or, here's the dark side, leaves them unresponsive to the offer of forgiveness, which is the gospel, and so they are left in their sins. That's a staggering truth to behold here because the very same mission that the disciples are sent is really no different from ours today. What we are doing day after day is this. We are preaching forgiveness. We are withholding forgiveness. Not because of our power, not because of our ability, but because the Word speaks. And when the Word speaks, men either believe and are saved or men don't believe and they perish in hell. The disciples were sent by Christ in that same mission. They were empowered and they were authorized. And that's their ministry. All throughout Acts, they preach this gospel unequivocally. They preach this gospel passionately. And through this simple gospel of belief and forgiveness, the world was changed. And this is our ministry today. I mean, that's what's going on right now. That's what's going on throughout the world. Where believers are, this is happening. Where believers are going, where believers are spreading the, uh, the good news, there is life and death in their lips. It's a wonderful truth that he bestows upon the disciples, upon us. A wonderful truth that Christ backs them up completely, empowers them, gives them the words to speak, and their authority is in his divine word. I mean, the disciples are ecstatic. They've seen the Lord. They're so comforted. They're at peace. They're assured. Their confidence is at an all-time high. All that despair and confusion is gone. They have happiness. They have an aim. They have an objective. And then you get verse 24. That's a big letdown, kind of anticlimactic. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not, with, was not with them when Jesus came. He was not with them. And the absence of Thomas then, right, in the context of all this wonderful news, sets up the rest of the chapter and will drive home the main point that true faith, true faith believes absolutely in Jesus and the Jesus of the Scriptures, and His claims to be who He was and who He is. There's really no reason given for the absence of Thomas. Some people want to like slam Him for not being there. Where was He? He should have been there with Him. We really don't know. John actually doesn't condemn Him for that. doesn't give a reason. And so we should basically leave it at that. It may be just that 
Thomas was absent so that God could have this passage in the Bible. And we'll, we'll take that as the best answer. Instead of giving a reason for why he's not there, what John gives is his full name and the fact that he is one of the twelve. He's one of the twelve. And undoubtedly, Thomas was devoted to Christ. Because after Jesus tells him in John 11 that I'm going to Jerusalem to die, Thomas actually says, let us go too, so that we may die with him. Right? And John 14:5, after Jesus says, I'm going away, I go to prepare a place for you, I'll be back, but you know the way where I'm going. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? He's this, he's devoted, but he's like this hard-headed, kind of practical, uh, bluntly honest kind of guy. And in this passage, the rest of it, we'll see all these characteristics of Thomas and in his doubt and then in his uh, confession. So, So the next week, right? I mean, not the next week, before the next week, Thomas comes and the disciples immediately start proclaiming. As Mary proclaimed immediately upon meeting the Lord to the disciples, the disciples immediate, immediately say in verse 25, We have seen the Lord. And they're saying this over and over again because their joy can't be contained. We have seen the Lord. He is here. He is risen. But Thomas will not take their word for it. And the confession of Thomas begins with massive, implacable doubt. You know, they're all happy, they're all excited. Yeah, you know, we got authority to forgive sins. And he comes in, no, I don't think so. You know, he's not having any of it. He's just saying, this is impossible. He's, he just drains all the life out of the disciples, right? Instead, what he does is that he lays down conditions for belief. He says, I will believe only if such and such and such conditions are met. I gotta see his hands, I gotta see the imprints, I gotta see the scars and wounds, I gotta see them, otherwise I will not believe. Really, that's an emphatic double negative. No, I will never believe. And so, really, he doesn't actually ask for evidence. Because his, 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 uh, his mode right now cannot be changed. He's like, I'm not gonna believe. It's a sheer impossibility. You know, him saying, if I see this, if I see that, that's just, really, um, that's just really like a defense mechanism, if you will. He is in no mood to believe. He is not going to believe. He's basically saying, even if I really see those things, my mind's not going to be changed. There's no way on earth that I'll believe. The resurrection cannot happen. It's a sheer impossibility. And there we go. This hard-headed, practical, yet we have to commend him a little bit here. Utterly honest Thomas. I have to have these, quote-unquote, conditions met. Thomas says, basically, belief will be on his terms, not Christ's. He believes that he is in control and that he can dictate the terms of faith. He thinks, you know, if I can just see and just feel, then perhaps my belief will then kick in. He is utterly wrong, of course. The uniform testimony of the disciples, of the Old Testament scriptures, of Jesus' own words that Christ would be raised. And Jesus' presence will be then more than enough. So eight days later, Christ, the Good Shepherd, comes to His flock. And on the same night, Sunday night, as John uh, John tells us, Thomas is with them. Obviously then, we're going to be focusing on Thomas here. He miraculously appears and for the third time says, 
Uh, but the ter- third time says, peace with you. And then Jesus, in a moment of clear omniscience, directs his attention squarely on Thomas because he's the last one. When Jesus goes to the faithful, notice he doesn't go to the skeptics. They're not going to believe him anyway. And if, if they don't believe the law and the prophets, right, they are not going to believe someone risen from the dead. He goes to the faithful and he secures them. And he needs to secure Thomas and dispel his doubts. He's the only one left whose doubt must be wiped out, whose faith needs to be secured, so that Christ's commission can then be fulfilled. Christ goes to the faithful. He doesn't go to the Pharisees. He doesn't go to the scribes. He doesn't go to those who didn't believe him and say, See, I told you. Look, I'm alive again. You you guys got it all wrong. No. What do you think they would do? Believe him? Jesus knew their hearts. And that's not how belief works anyway. So in his omniscience, he squarely focuses on Thomas in verse 27. And notice in verse 27 that he meets Thomas at every one of Thomas's demands. Thomas says, Thomas says, I need to feel this. I need to feel his hands, his side. I will not believe. Jesus said, okay, reach here and put your hand in my side. He directs him to do this. And so Jesus commands Thomas like a loving teacher, showing his beloved student that what he thought was this problem without a solution had a very, very direct answer. Jesus' shepherding is amazing here, as always it is, but there's no harsh rebuke. There's no browbeating. There's no sharp words of condemnation. There's no, turn to your scrolls, you know, in Isaiah 53, you got it wrong. Psalm 16, don't you remember? Psalm 110, don't you remember my words? He doesn't do that. There's nothing but absolute tenderness and gentleness from the master shepherd to his erring lamb. And I believe in that we have a perfect object lesson for us. That in the midst of doubt and confusion, there is ample room for grace. There's ample room for mercy. There's ample room for softness. It doesn't mean passivity. It doesn't mean you're compromising the faith. It doesn't mean you're not being intense or zealous. No. And there are times to be intense and zealous and then there are times to turn it down a notch and be quiet and be very careful with your words and be very tender and soft and nurturing to those who need securing in their faith. Those who are weak, those who are beaten down, those who are in confusion. Thomas is not an unbeliever. His faith is not fully formed yet. He is a believer. John 6 uh, 69 clearly tells all, us that all the believers, all the uh, disciples were believers. Thomas just needs a little push. Thomas needs more information, if you will. Thomas needs a little kick to get him going. And that's what Jesus gives here. Jesus actually condescends for the sake of Thomas, meeting him at his limitations and covering his weakness for the greater cause of comforting him and shoring up his lack of conviction in the resurrection. Do you do that when you minister? Do you do that when someone doesn't understand, when someone doesn't get it? Or is your immediate impulse, your reflex, to thump the Bible? Is your immediate reflex to condemn and to judge and to say, what's wrong with you? Why don't you get it? It's clear. It's written in the scriptures. 
the immediate impulse of Jesus Christ to this really rigid disciple, the stubborn disciple, wasn't to break him with hardness, but was to melt his heart with gentle touch. Jesus showing him his scars. He makes a final command. He says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus says, basically, cease and desist from your persistent unbelief. Do not continue in this, but continue believing. Start and persistently continue believing in me. He calls Thomas to a radical change of attitude, one that would see the resurrection, not just as history. A lot of people would say it's just a historical fact. Even some unbelievers would say that. But it is the source and the content of his faith and of his future lifelong ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is what drives the early church, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what made the church. The church was built on the back of the doctrine of the resurrection. So believe and continue to believe. Keep on believing, Thomas. So he began with doubt. In verse 28, Jesus completely dispels any doubt. And then in verse 28, all doubt, not just dispelled, but eradicated, obliterated. Immediately, Thomas says in verse 28, My Lord and my God. In one fell swoop, he moves from doubt to faith. There's no hitch. There's no pause. No hesitance. Just bam, just like that. Just like Mary turned to Jesus. When he called her, remember in verse 16, and he said, Rabboni, my teacher, and affirmed her faith, here as well, this immediate replacement of faith, immediate replacement, excuse me, of doubt by faith. And there's no testing of the evidence here. Notice that John actually, he doesn't mention anything about Thomas going to touch Jesus. He doesn't live up to his demands, his conditions, which shows that his conditions weren't really his conditions at all. His immediate presupposition always was, I'm not going to believe. That's why he said, strongly, with a double negative. He doesn't touch Christ, doesn't say anything about him feeling the wounds, testing the evidence, so to speak, in the very presence of Christ. All that spiritual wax, if you will, melts off Thomas's eyes. And any kind of skepticism, any kind of hard-headedness that was there can no longer be found in that confession. It's completely obliterated by a full and unwavering recognition of who Christ is. Jesus has not been called God by anyone in the Gospel, except in one one. And John there is not talking about the incarnated Lord. He's talking about Christ before His incarnation. And so here Thomas is calling Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth as a Jew, He is calling Him God. It's a complete affirmation of deity. And this confession also points out that the resurrection of Jesus reveals who He truly is. He is Lord and He is God. The resurrection vindicates Him completely. There are no others, no other gods, no other lords. And He says twice, My. And He personalizes this confession. It shows that this confession is really our confession. This is our confession. He says, my Savior, in a sense, my King, my God. Not some cold, some distant, some aloof God, but a personal and a very intimate God. 
a God that is yours and a God that is mine. And clearly this is the confession of all true believers, all true Christians throughout the history of the church. My Lord and my God. And on the heels then of going through this whole process from doubt to faith in the person of Thomas, right after that we see two commentaries on this. First we see Jesus' commentary and then John's conclusion in light of Jesus' commentary. Jesus uses this opportunity to teach about faith. Right after he says, My Lord, my God, Jesus doesn't give Thomas a pat on the back. He doesn't actually rebuke him, but there's no like party thrown, right? There's no celebration. Whoop-de-doo, you believed. No. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Essentially, this is Jesus' commentary on faith. Faith with, faith with, with sight is good, but faith, verse 29, at the end, without sight is better. Note that he doesn't negate Thomas's faith. Thomas's confession is genuine. He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 Thomas, you're too hard-headed. I don't believe that. Say it one more time. No, he doesn't say that. Thomas, run through these hoops. Thomas, what will you do for me? Then I'll believe. No. Jesus accepts his confession as genuine. But Jesus sees this. And what he sees is this. The step of faith that Thomas has taken... Alright, it is a certain leap of faith. It's a step. It's kind of far, I guess. But again, he was already a believer. John 6.69 clearly tells us that. Minus Judas Iscariot, all the disciples clearly affirmed Christ for who he truly was. So in Jesus' mind, he sees Thomas' step of faith, but that triggers in him a looking forward. A looking forward down the ages to see the next step. He looks down and sees all those who will come to faith after he ascends back to the Father. Because he will no longer be there. He will be permanently gone until the second coming when there will be no chance to repent anyway. He'll be gone. This is the last chance anyone will ever see him until it doesn't matter anymore, until it's too late for anyone to come to faith. And so Jesus, seeing that, seeing the future in a sense in his words, says, that faith without sight is excellent. Faith with, without sight is blessed. Because my resurrection is only a one-time shot. It's not going to happen again. I've been crucified once for all. I've been risen from the dead once for all because I'm only going to die once. And I'm only going to ascend once to the Father because I'm only going to come back one more time. For wrath for unbelievers, but in love for believers. It's history. And so this blessing is pronounced. And Jesus is saying really here to us, Blessed are you if you cannot share in Thomas's experience, but by reading Thomas's experience, you can come to share Thomas's faith. That is what has happened to all of us here as believers. We have read the testimony of Jesus Christ. We have heard the testimony of Jesus Christ, Romans 10.7. And by hearing there has been born faith in our hearts. 1 Peter 1.8 says this, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Faith without sight, 
faith that comes by the hearing of the word or the reading of the word is more excellent than faith with sight. And because of that, John says, this is an appropriate time to put my conclusion to the gospel. This is an appropriate time to tell you why I wrote this. In light of what Jesus just said, let me tell you why I wrote it. I wrote this because by reading these things, because Jesus is no longer going to be with us, by reading these words, by hearing these truths about Christ, may you believe and may you then have life in His name. That's why I wrote it. And he states in his conclusion in verses 30 to 31 that there are many other signs. The last verse in this gospel tells us there are so many things that Jesus did if he were to detail all of them that the world itself would not contain the books that could be written, that would be written. So he did many other signs, but John selected a few key signs to point directly to the deity of Christ. And the greatest of all signs is this duo of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And these signs all unanimously, unequivocally, without hesitation attest that Jesus Christ is Lord and He is the Savior. And all these signs were performed, as John says, in the presence of the disciples. This is eyewitness testimony and this is testimony that can be confirmed by many. Paul actually says by more than 500. You can actually go and talk to some of them now. But by the time, interestingly enough, that John wrote this gospel, in AD 90 to 95, he was the only one, perhaps, most likely, the only one remaining that would have seen Jesus raised from the dead. So really here, right, he's giving, by the very fact of when he's writing it, giving even more emphasis on belief in the Word, belief in the Scriptures. Right? Don't just believe my Word, but believe the inspired, written uh, the inerrant, infallible Word of God. And if you believe, you will have life in His name. It's 80, 90, 95. This Gospel is written and sent out to the churches. No one's going to be able to say, yeah, John is actually right. I was there. I saw it too. Right? No one can go back and say it. There's nobody left alive except Him. And so it's really about faith in the Word. And hence John's conclusion. It's not about faith in the wounds and the scars of Christ. It's not about faith in His physical appearance. It's not about faith in... Um, it's not about faith in any tangible things that you can see or touch or feel. It's about faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah, Jesus as the Son of God, very God. And by believing that, you are forgiven of your sins and you have a relationship with God through Christ that will last forever. John 17:3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He is the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in him, even if you die, right? You will live. You will never truly die. You will never truly perish. Eternal death does not await you. Hell will not await you. No your blessing will be heaven and the rewards that await every believer. This gospel's purpose then is to engender faith in those who read it. There is an absolutely evangel evangelistic thrust to this gospel. For the believer, it will not cause you to believe, but it will affirm your faith. I believe it will increase your faith. 
I believe it will also comfort you in your faith and give you peace because you believe in the claims of Christ. Reading through this gospel strengthens those claims in your heart. Your belief becomes more fixed, more resolute, and you trust in God more, especially in difficult times. But for the unbeliever, if you read these words and see Christ for who He really is, then you will be saved from an eternity of condemnation. You will be saved and delivered from hell. And that gospel, this book then, is for you this morning. I want to draw out of this then really four key lessons, maybe not even applications, but four lessons in light of this narrative. The first lesson is just a general lesson drawn from his resurrection, from Christ's resurrection. And that's this, that that event is a great source of spiritual strength. It's a great source of spiritual strength. Because we know that he is risen and he is alive and he has ascended to the Father, we know that one day we will be like him. We know that one day he will return and take us with him. And that knowing, that belief, inspired the faith of the apostles and it turned them from a band of confused and cowardly defectors to a marching army of soldiers willing up to give their life for this truth. And the only one that didn't die a martyr's death was John. But he didn't have it that easy during his life. Persecuted, exiled to a rocky island of Patmos. Thomas himself, in fact, sent the gospel, took the gospel to Asia, uh, to uh, India. And there, on the Indian continent, gave up his life, as church history tells us, for the sake of the gospel. Doubting Thomas became a fiery evangelist. This is no mere conviction. When this truth settles in your heart, there is a divinely implanted, unwavering trust that comes in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Really, the growth of Christianity makes no sense if the resurrection is not real. How in the world did this confused, fearful, right, a treasonous group of guys who didn't know what was going on, didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus, were afraid of the Jews, how in the world did they all of a sudden start dying for their faith? How in the world did they all of a sudden go out of their comfort zones, risk their lives, give up their lives, give up everything on earth for the sake of the gospel? We find that the resurrection then is clearly it's a presupposition of all of early Christianity. If you're a Christian here, you're here because of the resurrection. You believe it. You presuppose it. It's not something you came to after you believed. After many years of belief, then, oh, the resurrection kicked in. No. The resurrection makes you a Christian. If you were a Christian here, it's because of the resurrection. If you're not a Christian, then you don't believe the resurrection. The resurrection has no part in your life. It doesn't make sense. Without the resurrection, the church would not be the church. It would have died on that Sunday. Lesson two is this, from the life of Thomas. True faith is unconditional. True faith is unconditional. True faith doesn't say, God, just let me have health. Let my mother, let my father, let my children have health. Let them get out of this sickness and I'll believe you. True faith doesn't say, God, just get me out of this financial crisis and then I'll believe you. God, just work out things at home 
with my parents or with my siblings, with my wife, with my husband, then I'll believe you. God, just save my unbelieving family members, my friends, colleagues, co-students. Then I'll believe you. No, just God, just get me this job. Find me a wife, a husband. Then I'll believe you. Then I'll live for you. God, give me this ministry that I want so bad. I want to serve in this way so much. If you just give this to me, I'll believe you. Make my children obey me more. Then I'll believe you. God, just get me out of this jam. Get me out of this trial. Please just shorten and make easy this difficult situation. Then I'll trust you more. Then my confidence will go up. Then I'll see that you are really God. You can really provide. Oh, and then I'll believe you. Is that how it works? What you are really saying is this, God, just show me that I'm in control. That I'm in control. That I am dictating the terms here. And then I'll believe. Do you really think that you will believe then? As believers, do you really think that your faith will just massively increase once this trial is over? Once this difficulty is gone? Once you get what you want? All of a sudden your faith like zap will be increased? That is not how faith works. Faith is wrought over time, over many trials, over many agonies, nights of wrestling with God in prayer over the scriptures, struggling to believe His Word and finding in it the sweet promises of His grace and mercy to those who cry out to Him. That is how true faith is built up. True faith is not delivered overnight, even as a child. It takes nine months in the womb right? before He comes. That is true faith. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. He will make your path straight. Strong faith does not come like anything in the Christian life by sudden outpourings from God. It is one inch by inch, crucifying sins one at a time, putting on righteousness. And all the while you have to be desperately clinging nail and tooth to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. When everything in your body, everything in your heart says give up, everything in you says don't believe, everything in you says just you can work it out, trust in yourself, just get through it, just endure, just ride it out. But Psalm 135, 130 verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in His word do I hope. True faith is unconditional. True faith also, thirdly, is apart from sight. True faith is apart from sight. I guess this is related to the previous lesson. Faith is defined in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Your faith in Jesus Christ is evidence, is evidence that those things are real. Have you ever thought about that? Your faith in the words of Scripture points to believers that there is a greater reality beyond this world. That there is a greater substance beyond this dimension, so to speak. This is illustrated in Luke 7, 6-9. Remember the centurion? His servant is sick. He goes to Jesus and he says this to the Lord, I didn't consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say with a word and my servant will be healed. Right, Jesus, you don't have to come back. I don't have to bring him with you. Just say it and he'll be done. And he 
illustrates this by saying, you know, I'm a man in authority. I know what it's like. If I tell this person, do this, they do it. If I I say to a person, go there, they go. It's just like that with you, right, Jesus? And when Jesus heard this, and it never says this about anyone else in the Gospels, he marveled at him. He is just totally amazed. And he turns to the crowd that was following him, and many of them, of course, following him for all the wrong reasons, for bread and food, right? And he turns to them and says, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. The centurion didn't have to see. Jesus, I believe who you are. Just say it. I believe your word and it will come to be. Man, that's awesome. And on top of that, this no, no, faith, uh, no sight faith is blessed. In verse 29, blessed are they. Blessed are you. Blessed are me. Blessed are us. Our faith has Jesus' approval, meaning it is faith that God accepts. It is faith that God accepts. It is faith that truly satisfies. It is a faith that is whole and complete. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. True faith is apart from sight. Lastly, true faith is stimulated by the Word of God. So true faith True faith is stimulated by the word of God. It's unconditional, apart from sight, stimulated by God's word. Verses 30 to 31, the conclusion of the book teaches this very clearly. You read the account of Christ in the Gospels and the explanation of Christ in the epistles and the glory of Christ in Revelation. And what you do is you take these words at face value. You don't question them. You don't judge them. You don't seek the real meaning, the hidden meaning behind them. No. You read, you believe, and you worship Jesus Christ for who He is.